0: Section six of Emile. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Emile by Jean Jacques Rousseau. Translated by Barbara Foxley. Book number two, part two nature provides for the child's growth in her own fashion and this should never be thwarted do not make him sit still when he wants to run about nor run when he wants to be quiet if we did not spoil our children's wills by our blunders their desires would be free from caprice let them run jump to their hearts content all their activities are instincts of the body for its growth in strength and you should regard with suspicion those wishes which they cannot carry out for themselves, those which others must carry out for them. Then you must distinguish carefully between natural and artificial needs, between the needs of budding caprice and the needs which spring from the overflowing life just described. I have already told you what you ought to do when a child cries for this thing or that. I will only add that as soon as he has words to ask for what he wants and accompanies his demand with tears, either to get his own way quicker or to override a refusal, he should never have his way. If his words were prompted by a real need, you should recognize it and satisfy it at once. But to yield to his tears is to encourage him to cry, to teach him to doubt your kindness, and to think that you are influenced more by his importunity than your own good will. If he does not think you kind, he will soon think you unkind. If he thinks you weak, he will soon become obstinate. What you mean to give must be given at once. Be chary by refusing, but having refused, do not change your mind above all beware of teaching the child empty phrases of politeness which serve as spells to subdue those around him to his will and to get him what he wants at once the artificial education of the rich never fails to make them politely imperious by teaching them the words to use so that no one will dare to resist them their children have neither the tone nor the manner of suppliance. They are as haughty, or even more haughty, in their entreaties than in their commands, as though they were more certain to be obeyed. You see at once that, if you please, means it pleases me, and I beg, means I command. What a fine sort of politeness, which only succeeds in changing the meaning of words, so that every word is a command. For my own part i would rather emile were rude than haughty that he should say do this as a request rather than please as a command what concerns me is his meaning not his words there is such a thing as excessive severity as well as excessive indulgence and both alike should be avoided if you let children suffer, you risk their health and life. You make them miserable now. If you take too much pains to spare them every kind of uneasiness, you are laying up much misery for them in the future. You are making them delicate and oversensitive. You are taking them out of their place among men, a place to which they must sooner or later return in spite of all your pains. YOU WILL SAY I AM FALLING INTO THE SAME MISTAKE AS THOSE BAD FATHERS WHOM I BLAMED FOR SACRIFICING THE PRESENT HAPPINESS OF THEIR CHILDREN TO A FUTURE WHICH MAY NEVER BE THEIRS. NOT SO, FOR THE LIBERTY I GIVE MY PUPIL MAKES UP FOR THE SLIGHT HARDSHIPS TO WHICH HE IS EXPOSED. I SEE LITTLE FELLOWS PLAYING IN THE SNOW, STIFF AND BLUE, WITH COLD, SCARCELY ABLE TO STIR A FINGER, they could go and warm themselves if they chose, but they do not choose. If you forced them to come in, they would feel the harshness of constraint a hundredfold more than the sharpness of the cold. Then what becomes of your grievance? Shall I make your child more miserable by exposing him to hardships, which he is perfectly ready to endure? I secure his present good by leaving him his freedom and his future good by arming him against the evils he will have to bear if he had his choice would he hesitate for a moment between you and me do you think any man can find true happiness elsewhere than in his natural state when you try to spare him all suffering are you not taking him out of his natural state indeed i maintain that to enjoy great happiness he must experience slight ills such is his nature too much bodily prosperity corrupts the morals a man who knew nothing of suffering would be incapable of tenderness towards his fellow creatures and ignorant of the joys of pity he would be hard-hearted unsocial a very monster among men do you know the surest way to make your child miserable let him have everything he wants for as his wants increase in proportion to the ease with which they are satisfied you will be compelled sooner or later to refuse his demands and this unlooked-for refusal will hurt him more than the lack of what he wants he will want your stick first then your watch the bird that flies or the star that shines above him. He will want all he sets his eyes on, and unless you were God himself, how would you satisfy him? Man naturally considers all that he can get as his own. In this sense, Hobbes' theory is true to a certain extent. Multiply both our wishes and the means of satisfying them, and each will be master of all. Thus a child who has only to ask and have thinks himself the master of the universe. He considers all men as his slaves, and when you are at last compelled to refuse, he takes your refusal as an act of rebellion, for he thinks he has only to command. All the reasons you give him, while he is still too young to reason, are so many pretenses in his eyes. They seem to him only unkindness. The sense of injustice embitters his disposition he hates everyone though he has never felt grateful for kindness he resents all opposition how should i suppose that such a child can ever be happy he is the slave of anger a prey to the fiercest passions happy he is a tyrant at once the basest of slaves and the most wretched of creatures I have known children brought up like this who expected you to knock the house down, to give them the weathercock on the steeple, to stop a regiment on the march, so that they might listen to the band. When they could not get their way, they screamed and cried and would pay no attention to anyone. In vain everyone strove to please them. As their desires were stimulated by the ease with which they got their own way, they set their hearts on impossibilities and found themselves face to face with opposition and difficulty, pain, and grief. Scolding, sulking, or in a rage, they wept and cried all day. Were they really so greatly favored? Weakness combined with love of power produces nothing but folly and suffering. One spoilt child beats a table, another whips the sea. They may beat and whip long enough before they find contentment. If their childhood is made wretched by these notions of power and tyranny, what of their manhood, when their relations with their fellow men begin to grow and multiply? They are used to find everything give way to them what a painful surprise to enter society and meet with opposition on every side to be crushed beneath the weight of a universe which they expected to move at will their insolent manners their childish vanity only draw down upon them mortification scorn and mockery they swallow insults like water sharp experience soon teaches them that they have realized neither their position nor their strength as they cannot do everything they think they can do nothing they are daunted by unexpected obstacles degraded by the scorn of men they become base cowardly and deceitful and fall as far below their true level as they formerly soared above it let us come back to the primitive law nature has made children helpless and in need of affection did she make them to be obeyed and feared has she given them an imposing manner a stern eye a loud and threatening voice with which to make themselves feared i understand how the roaring of the lion strikes terror into the other beasts so that they tremble when they behold his terrible mane but of all unseemly hateful and ridiculous sights was there ever anything like a body of statesmen in their robes of office with their chief at their head bowing down before a swaddled babe addressing him in pompous phrases while he cries and slavers in reply if we consider childhood itself is there anything so weak and wretched as a child anything so utterly at the mercy of those about it so dependent on their pity their care and their affection does it not seem as if his gentle face and touching appearance were intended to interest every one on behalf of his weakness and to make them eager to help him and what is the more offensive more unsuitable than the sight of a sulky or imperious child who commands those about him and impudently assumes the tone of a master towards those without whom he would perish on the other hand do you not see how children are fettered by the weakness of infancy do you not see how cruel it is to increase this servitude by obedience to our capacities by depriving them of such liberty as they have a liberty they can scarcely abuse a liberty the loss of which will do so little good to them or us if there is nothing more ridiculous than a haughty child there is nothing that claims our pity like a timid child with the age of reason the child becomes the slave of the community then why forestall this by slavery in the home let this brief hour of life be free from a yoke which nature has not laid upon it leave the child the use of his natural liberty which for a time at least secures him from the vices of the slave bring me those harsh masters and those fathers who are the slaves of their children bring them both with their frivolous objections and before they boast of their own methods let them for once learn the method of nature i return to practical matters i have already said your child must not get what he asks but what he needs Footnote. We must recognize that pain is often necessary. Pleasure is sometimes needed. So there is only one of the child's desires, which should never be complied with, the desire for power. Hence whenever they ask for anything, we must pay special attention to their motive in asking. As far as possible, give them everything they ask for, provided it can really give them pleasure. Refuse everything they demand from mere caprice or love of power. He must never act from obedience, but from necessity. The very words OBEY and COMMAND will be excluded from his vocabulary, still more those of DUTY and OBLIGATION but the words strength, necessity, weakness, and constraint must have a large place in it. Before the age of reason, it is impossible to form any idea of moral beings or social relations, so avoid as far as may be the use of words which express these ideas, lest a child at an early age should attach wrong ideas to them ideas which you cannot or will not destroy when he is older the first mistaken idea he gets into his head is the germ of error and vice it is the first step that needs watching act in such a way that while he only notices external objects his ideas are confined to sensations let him only see the physical world around him. If not, you may be sure that either he will pay no heed to you at all, or he will form fantastic ideas of the moral world of which you prate, ideas which you will never efface as long as he lives. Reason with children was Locke's chief maxim. It is in the height of fashion at present, and I hardly think it is justified by its results those children who have been constantly reasoned with strike me as exceedingly silly. Of all man's faculties, reason, which is, so to speak, compounded of all the rest, is the last and choicest growth. And it is this you wish to use for the child's early training? To make a man reasonable is the coping stone of a good education and yet you profess to train a child through his reason you begin at the wrong end you make the end the means if children understood reason they would not need education but by talking to them from their earliest age in a language they do not understand you accustom them to be satisfied with words to question all that is said to them to think themselves as wise as their teachers you train them to be argumentative and rebellious. Whatever you think you gain from motives of reason, you really gain from greediness, fear, or vanity, with which you are obliged to reinforce your reasoning. Most of the moral lessons which are and can be given to children need to be reduced to this formula. Master, you must not do that. Child, why not? MASTER BECAUSE IT IS WRONG CHILD WRONG? WHAT IS WRONG? MASTER WHAT IS FORBIDDEN YOU CHILD WHY IS IT WRONG TO DO WHAT IS FORBIDDEN? MASTER YOU WILL BE PUNISHED FOR DISOBEDIENCE CHILD I WILL DO IT WHEN NO ONE IS LOOKING MASTER WE SHALL WATCH YOU CHILD I will hide. Master, we shall ask you what you were doing. Child, I shall tell a lie. Master, you must not tell lies. Child, why must not I tell lies? Master, because it is wrong. Etc. That is the inevitable circle. Go beyond it, and the child will not understand you what sort of use is there in such teaching i should greatly like to know what you would substitute for this dialogue it would have puzzled locke himself it is no part of a child's business to know right and wrong to perceive the reason for a man's duties nature would have them children before they are men if we try to invert this order we shall produce a forced fruit immature and flavorless fruit which will be rotten before it is ripe we shall have young doctors and old children childhood has its own ways of seeing thinking and feeling nothing is more foolish than to try and substitute our ways and i should no more expect judgment in a ten-year-old child than i should expect him to be five feet high indeed what use would reason be to him at that age it is the curb of strength, and the child does not need the curb. When you try to persuade your scholars of the duty of obedience, you add to this so-called persuasion compulsion and threats, or still worse, flattery and bribes. Attracted by selfishness or constrained by force, they pretend to be convinced by reason they see as soon as you do that obedience is to their advantage and disobedience to their disadvantage but as you only demand disagreeable things of them and it is always disagreeable to do another's will they hide themselves so that they may do as they please persuaded that they are doing no wrong so long as they are not found out but ready if found out to own themselves in the wrong for fear of worse evils the reason for duty is beyond their age, and there is not a man in the world who could make them really aware of it. For the fear of punishment, the hope of forgiveness, importunity, the difficulty of answering rings from them as many confessions as you want, and you think you have convinced them when you have only wearied or frightened them. What does it all come to? In the first place, by imposing on them a duty which they fail to recognize, you make them disciplined to submit to your tyranny, and you turn away their love. You teach them deceit, falsehood, and lying as a way to gain rewards or escape punishment. Then, by accustoming them to conceal a secret motive under the cloak of an apparent one, you yourself... Put into their hands the means of deceiving you, of depriving you of a knowledge of their real character, of answering you and others with empty words whenever they have the chance. Laws, you say, though binding on conscience, exercise the same constraint over grown up men. That is so. But what are these men but children spoilt by education? This is just what you should avoid. Use force with children and reasoning with men. This is the natural order. The wise man needs no laws. Treat your scholar according to his age. Put him in his place from the first and keep him in it so that he no longer tries to leave it. Then before he knows what goodness is, he will be practicing its chief lesson. Give him no orders at all, absolutely none. Do not even let him think that you claim any authority over him. Let him only know that he is weak and you are strong, that his condition and yours puts him at your mercy. Let this be perceived, learned, and felt. Let him early find upon his proud neck the heavy yoke which nature has imposed upon us, the heavy yoke of necessity, under which every finite being must bow. Let him find this necessity in things, not in caprices. Footnote. You may be sure the child will regard as caprice any will which opposes his own, or any will which he does not understand. Now the child does not understand anything which interferes with his own fancies. End footnote. Of Man. Let the curb be force, not authority. If there is something he should not do, do not forbid him, but prevent him without explaining or reasoning what you give him. Give it at his first word without prayers or entreaties, above all without conditions. Give willingly, refuse unwillingly, but let your refusal be irrevocable. Let no entreaties move you. Let your no, once uttered, be a wall of brass against which the child may exhaust his strength some five or six times but in the end he will try no more to overthrow it thus you will make him patient equable calm and resigned even when he does not get all he wants for it is in man's nature to bear patiently with the nature of things but not with the ill-will of another a child never rebels against there is none left unless he thinks the reply is false. Moreover, there is no middle course. You must either make no demands on him at all, or else you must fashion him to perfect obedience. The worst education of all is to leave him hesitating between his own will and yours, constantly disputing whether you or he is master. I would rather a hundred times that he were master it is very strange that ever since people began to think about education, they should have hit upon no other way of guiding children than emulation, jealousy, envy, vanity, greediness, base cowardice, all the most dangerous passions, passions ever ready to ferment, ever prepared to corrupt the soul even before the body is full grown. With every piece of precocious instruction which you try to force into their minds, you plant a vice in the depths of their hearts. Foolish teachers think they are doing wonders when they are making their scholars wicked in order to teach them what goodness is. And then they tell us seriously, Such is man. Yes, such is man, as you have made him, Every means has been tried except one, the very one which might succeed, well-regulated liberty. Do not undertake to bring up a child if you cannot guide him merely by the laws of what can or cannot be. The limits of the possible and the impossible are alike unknown to him, so they can be extended or contracted around him at your will. Without a murmur he is restrained, urged on, held back, by the hands of necessity alone he is made adaptable and teachable by the mere force of things without any chance for vice to spring up in him for passions do not arise so long as they have accomplished nothing give your scholar no verbal lessons he should be taught by experience alone never punish him for he does not know what it is to do wrong never make him say forgive me for he does not know how to do you wrong wholly unmoral in his actions he can do nothing morally wrong and he deserves neither punishment nor reproof already i see the frightened reader comparing this child with those of our time he is mistaken the perpetual restraint imposed upon your scholars stimulates their activity the more subdued they are in your presence, the more boisterous they are as soon as they are out of your sight. They must make amends to themselves in some way or other for the harsh constraint to which you subject them. Two schoolboys from the town will do more damage in the country than all the children of the village. Shut up a young gentleman and a young peasant in a room the former will have upset and smashed everything before the latter has stirred from his place why is that unless that the one hastens to misuse a moment's license while the others always sure of freedom does not use it rashly and yet the village children often flattered or constrained are still very far from the state in which i would have them kept let us lay it down as an incontrovertible rule that the first impulses of nature are always right there is no original sin in the human heart the how and why of the entrance of every vice can be traced the only natural passion is self-love or selfishness taken in a wider sense this selfishness is good in itself and in relation to ourselves and as a child has no necessary relations to other people, he is naturally indifferent to them. His self-love only becomes good or bad by the use made of it, and the relations established by its means. Until the time is ripe for the appearance of reason, that guide of selfishness, the main thing is that the child shall do nothing because you are watching him or listening to him. In a word, nothing because of other people but only what nature asks of him. Then he will never do wrong. I do not mean to say that he will never do any mischief, never hurt himself, never break a costly ornament, if you leave it within his reach. He might do much damage without doing wrong, since wrongdoing depends on the harmful intention, which will never be his. If once he meant to do harm, his whole education would be ruined. He would be almost hopelessly bad greed considers some things wrong which are not wrong in the eyes of reason when you leave free scope to a child's heedlessness you must put anything he could spoil out of his way and leave nothing fragile or costly within his reach let the room be furnished with plain and solid furniture no mirrors china or useless ornaments my pupil Emile. Who is brought up in the country shall have a room just like a peasant's why take such pains to adorn it when he will be so little in it i am mistaken however he will adorn it for himself and we shall soon see how but if in spite of your precautions the child contrives to do some damage if he breaks some useful article do not punish him for your carelessness do not even scold him. Let him hear no word of reproval. Do not even let him see that he has vexed you. Behave just as if the thing had come to pieces of itself. You may consider you have done great things, if you have managed to hold your tongue. May I venture at this point to state the greatest, the most important, the most useful rule of education? It is do not save time but lose it i hope that everyday readers will excuse my paradoxes you cannot avoid paradox if you think for yourself and whatever you may say i would rather fall into paradox than into prejudice the most dangerous period in life lies between birth and the age of twelve it is the time when errors and vices spring up, while well, as yet there is no means to destroy them. When the means of destruction are ready, the roots have gone too deep to be pulled up. If the infant spring at one bound from its mother's breast to the age of reason, the present type of education would be quite suitable. But its natural growth calls for quite a different training the mind should be left undisturbed till its faculties have developed for while it is blind it cannot see the torch you offer it nor can it follow through the vast expanse of ideas a path so faintly traced by reason that the best eyes can scarcely follow it therefore the education of the earliest years should be merely negative it consists not in teaching virtue or truth but in preserving the heart from vice and from the spirit of air if only you could let well alone and get others to follow your example if you could bring your scholar to the age of twelve strong and healthy but unable to tell his right hand from his left the eyes of his understanding would be open to reason as soon as you began to teach him free from prejudices and free from habits there would be nothing in him to counteract the effects of your labors. In your hands, he would soon become the wisest of men. By doing nothing to begin with, you would end with a prodigy of education. Reverse the usual practice, and you will almost always do right. Fathers and teachers who want to make the child, not a child, but a man of learning, Think it never too soon to scold, correct, reprove, threaten, bribe, teach, and reason. Do better than they. Be reasonable, and do not reason with your pupil. More especially, do not try to make him approve what he dislikes. For if reason is always connected with disagreeable matters, you will make it distasteful to him. You discredit it at an early age in a mind not yet ready to understand it. Exercise his body, his limbs, his senses, his strength, but keep his mind idle as long as you can. Distrust all opinions which appear before the judgment to discriminate between them. Restrain and ward off strange impressions, and to prevent the birth of evil, do not hasten to do well, for goodness is only possible when enlightened by reason. Regard all delays as so much time gained. You have achieved much. You approach the boundary without loss. Leave childhood to ripen in your children. In a word, beware of giving anything they need today, if it can be deferred without danger to tomorrow. There is another point to be considered which confirms the suitability of this method it is the child's individual bent which must be thoroughly known before we can choose the fittest moral training. Every mind has its own form in accordance with which it must be controlled, and the success of the pains taken depends largely on the fact that he is controlled in this way and no other. O oh, wise man, take time to observe nature. Watch your scholar well before you say a word to him first leave the germ of his character free to show itself do not constrain him in anything better to see him as he really is do you think this time of liberty is wasted on the contrary your scholar will be the better employed for this is the way you yourself will learn not to lose a single moment when time is of more value if however you begin to act before you know what to do you act at random. You may make mistakes and must retrace your steps. Your haste to reach your goal will only take you further from it. Do not imitate the miser who loses much, lest he should lose a little. Sacrifice a little time in early childhood, and it will be repaid you with usury when your scholar is older. The wise physician does not hastily give prescriptions at first sight but he studies the constitution of the sick man before he prescribes anything the treatment is begun later but the patient is cured while the hasty doctor kills him but where shall we find a place for our child so as to bring him up as a senseless being an automaton shall we keep him in the moon or on a desert island shall we remove him from human society will he not always have around him the sight and the pattern of the passions of other people will he never see children of his own age will he not see his parents his neighbours his nurse his governess his manservant his tutor himself who after all will not be an angel here we have a real and serious objection but did i not tell you that an education according to nature would be an easy task Oh, men, it is my fault that you have made all good things difficult. I admit that I am aware of these difficulties. Perhaps you are insuperable, but nevertheless it is certain that we do to some extent avoid them by trying to do so. I am showing what we should try to attain. I do not say we may attain it, but I do say that whoever comes nearest to it is nearest to success. Remember, you must be a man yourself before you try to train a man. You yourself must set the pattern he shall copy. While the child is still unconscious, there is time to prepare his surroundings so that nothing shall strike his eye but what is fit for his sight. Gain the respect of everyone. Begin to win their hearts so that they may try to please you. You will not be master of the child if you cannot control everyone about him. And this authority will never suffice unless it rests upon respect for your goodness. There is no question of squandering one's means and giving money right and left. I never knew money win love. You must neither be harsh nor niggardly, nor must you merely pity misery when you can relieve it but in vain will you open your purse if you do not open your heart along with it the hearts of others will always be closed to you you must give your own time attention affection your very self for whatever you do people always perceive that your money is not you there are proofs of kindly interest which produce more results and are really more useful than any gift HOW MANY OF THE SICK AND WRETCHED HAVE MORE NEED OF COMFORT THAN OF CHARITY? HOW MANY OF THE OPPRESSED NEED PROTECTION RATHER THAN MONEY? RECONCILE THOSE WHO ARE AT STRIFE. PREVENT LAWSUITS. INCLINE CHILDREN TO DUTY, FATHERS TO KINDNESS. PROMOTE HAPPY MARRIAGES. PREVENT ANNOYANCES. FREELY USE THE CREDIT OF YOUR PUPILS' PARENTS on behalf of the weak who cannot obtain justice the weak who are oppressed by the strong be just human kindly do not give alms alone give charity burks of mercy do more than money for the relief of suffering love others and they will love you serve them and they will serve you be their brother and they will be your children end of section 6